Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we are going to hear from Grammy Award-winning classical guitarist and music educator, Andrew York. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. So today's episode, we are going to be playing Andrew York's entire NAM oral history interview, which took place uh, in 2019. And I'm really excited to share this story. And I know you guys are too. Yeah, he is one smart dude. And when he talks, <laughs> <laughs> when he talks, you just, some of that just kind of bounces off to you and you kind of feel like you're, I don't know, in some kind of cool club or something. I don't know. That's how I felt when I heard him talk. You're at least hoping you can follow along with him. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the trick. You know, I, when conducting the interview, I just was like, come on, Dan, stay with it. Stay with it. Come on, Dan. You know, put all your brain cells together and just focus. please <laughs> understand what he's saying. Fantastic guy, charming guy, smart, as we said, but also there's a, there's a passion and a drive that I think makes him a, a, a perfect instructor for the classical guitar, and I know he's sought out by many students as a result of that. And just his playing is, you know, once you hear somebody like him talking and describing his uh, approach to music, you have a deeper understanding and passion yourself for listening to that type of music, especially Baroque on the guitar. I think really it broadens it, certainly my understanding just in listening to him. So I'm very excited to share his story with you guys. Cool. Let's jump right into it. So here is Andrew York from his 2019 oral history interview. Andy, thank you so much for having us over. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you guys here. One of the things that I would love to uh, talk a little bit about is your passion for music and how you saw that grow in your own life. Did you have music in your home when you were growing up? I did. Um, in fact, my father's a guitar player, and uh, he, he was even in a, like a, a folk band when he was young and made a 78 record, which I didn't know till recently. I found it at home. I'm not sure it's completely playable. It's kind of cracked, but he, he was like, yeah, I made a 78. Um, my mom was a, a great singer. She's still, I mean, she's 94 now. She just turned 94 the other day. But she's a fantastic singer. So I grew up <coughs> with two things in my ears, really. My mother would sing to me. And she has a beautiful sense of pitch and a very rich voice. And so I, I really think I got a sense of melody from her. You know, it still echoes in my mind. My dad has a very good ear also, and he's very harmonically oriented. As a folk player, his main thing was to sing or play folk songs. But anytime he would make a harmonic change, you could see in his expression that he was very much on board with all the emotional implications from changing harmony. Many people miss this. And I, as a young boy, I was fascinated with music and I would, you know, besides having the experience with my parents and, and family sing-alongs, my uncle plays guitar too, and we'd, I still know hundreds of folks, folk tunes from like Civil War era, um, England and Ireland, because um, that's what we would do. But um, that led then to putting on LPs when I was in elementary school, I would just put on anything I could find. And my uncle, 
who was off to Vietnam, left his record collection with us. And my dad also had a large classical collection. So I was just putting on records of everything. Sousa marches, you know, Stravinsky, Beethoven. I became so enamored with Beethoven in elementary school that uh, my sister bought me um, Leonard Bernstein conducting Beethoven's Ninth. I wore it out, listened to it so much, so she bought me a second copy. Um, I, I was just completely obsessed with listening to music. And later, I mean, to this day now, I realize why. It's because I was born with an ear that's able to differentiate harmony and things like that, you know, all the elements of music, melody and harmony, very quickly. I get a, a huge amount of data when I listen to music. Um, I thought everybody did. I didn't know. And for me, it's very synesthetic. I have sort of a, a, a geometric and landscape-oriented way of organizing sound that allows me to see immediately what it is. Like when a song's on the radio, I know what the chords are before it's done and could write it all down, things like that. So that's a great uh, ability to have as a composer. And you know, any musician, I think, has a developed ear. They're drawn to music for this reason, because they can hear deeper into, into the quality of sound and the structure of music. For me, it's very deep and rich, and so that made me um, want to create music from the first moment I could play. You know, I wrote pieces when I was seven or eight years old. What was um, the first instrument you played? First one was guitar, and then right after, trombone. <coughs> I played trombone in elementary school, which I don't do that anymore. It became a lamp. In, in, uh, in college, had a great silver trombone lamp. But uh, then I majored in flute as well, and also studied piano and, and uh, upright bass. But I just play guitar now. Tell me about some of the musical experiences, like live music might be a good example, when you were growing up that really spoke to you, things that really you remember now. Some of them were so formative, and I think about this when, um, you know, when I'm working with students and wondering what might affect them that they'll that stay with them their whole life. There were so many. Um, just first one that comes to mind, uh, when I reached puberty, even though I was already studying classical guitar, I became incredibly interested in rock and roll. You know, so I bought huge amps and you know, playing so loud that it would make my pant legs shake, that kind of thing, just crazy. But it was fun and learned a lot from it. But I was a very serious rocker then. And, and then a friend of mine, I think I was maybe 16 or so, uh, that we played together also coffee houses doing folk folk music and stuff in high school. He said, there's, uh, on the, step, the, the steps of the Capitol in DC is the, uh, the Air Force big band, Airmen of Note. Let's go hear him. And my friend Kevin's a trumpet player. And we lived together in college and everything. So he was very interested in the, the lead trumpet player there, Ken Smuckles, who was great. So uh, I, I said, sure, let's go. You know, I always, always want to hear some music. So we went up there and the big band started hitting and you know, you know the sax is in front trombones, trumpets, and the rhythm section. They were so good, I was completely blown, blown away. I stopped playing rock and roll at that moment and became a jazz player. So I actually started studying with uh, Rick Whitehead, who was the guitarist of the Airmen of Note. Um, and when I turned, I, I, when I was getting close to turning 18, he, he tried to get me to join the Air Force, which, oh, man, I didn't do it. That would have been a different life altogether. They had an Air Force rock band at the time. He wanted me to be in it, but didn't go that route. Anyway, that experience of hearing that concert was so strong in me that it completely moved me to a new direction. I began studying jazz very seriously, which is like the calculus of music, you know, to, to really learn all the scales and inversions and understand music on a level where you can play bebop. And that's what I did for years and, and uh, reintroduced classical. Then I gravitated back into mainly classical. But I have that jazz training. I don't really play jazz anymore except for fun. 
But uh, that was one moment. There were others where I would hear music that would affect me so much it would change my direction or add another component to the music I would study or learn or my stylistic ventures. Yeah, that's amazing. Well said. You know, one of the things um, people always ask is your influences, right? And I think part of what's curious to me about that question is what is it that you hear in somebody else that moves you enough to want to embrace it? You know what I mean? It's not just, oh, okay, well, he, you know, he's a great guitar player, so I like him. You know what right. I mean, right? I mean, who are those that sort of rise above that and just connect with you? That's a really good question, Dan. Um, I mean, not to be overly philosophical, but it, you know, it begs the question, like, what is it in music that moves you? Because for me, it's, it's almost never <clears throat> because someone executes the instrument well. Um, there's just endless parade of people who can play well, but many of them won't move me. But there's something in a person who has a depth of expression, something that allows you a deeper glimpse into whatever, you know, reality, um, emotion, their personal, whatever, whatever it is, even if it's ineffable what they want to express. Some people just have that. There's that sense of magic like in the moment. Those are the people I've always been drawn to. And it, it's always a sense of authenticity. Um, you know, I, I was never interested, when I was into rock bands, I was, I was rarely interested in, in groups that were image driven. Uh, it was always when they, the ones that were music driven. I did like it when they, if they had a good guitar player. That always helped a lot too. But, but I liked the ones that the way they played somehow seemed very real and authentic. Not, not like they were pretending. Uh, there's a little image, of course, was okay. Especially, you know, you, rock and roll is about that. But there are some that were pretty much all image and the music seemed secondary. I liked the ones where the music was primary and kind of fresh and moving in new directions. I'm, I'm really drawn to that. Um, and I think music is, is such a mystery, we really don't know what it is. You know, it's the only art form that doesn't have a direct correlation in the world, like painting. And I used to paint. When you look at a, a painting, it's, it can be abstract, but it often represents something. We, we can imagine it in our lives. You know? um, a book, of course, is a, a study in, in characters and how they interrelate. You know, movies are the same thing. But what is music? It's completely abstract. We don't know what it is. I mean, why does a, a, a collection of sounds and uh, you know, rhythmic structures and harmony, why does that move us? What does it relate to? You know, this is a big mystery. We really still don't know. I mean, it relates basically to the harmonic series of mathematics, but most people wouldn't find that moving. I think it's deeper than that. I think it actually mirrors somehow deep structures of reality and some part of us knows that and, and relates to it on that level and that's why it can be one of the most powerful art forms and it's the only art form that by necessity is paired with most of other art forms like film. You have to have a soundtrack. It is the emotional soundtrack, music. So music is very powerful and I think that also is what draws me to other musicians if they have a sense of that expressing things on this level. So in jazz, who are some of your... Well, I loved, um, still do, John McLaughlin. He, uh, such an interesting way of playing, kind of uh, blending rock and roll and just, and he had great technical ability, but also a very interesting player. Never know where he would go. His work with Miles Davis, with Mahavishnu Orchestra and his solo records, um, loved him. Um, in terms of traditional guitar, Joe Pass was my hero for the chord melody kind of playing, this like quintessential bebop. It's just, 
had everything there. He was like a little orchestra and his lines were just unbelievable, just the best at what he did. There were others, I mean, there's many others, Tal Farlow, even early George Benson. He was very interesting back in the very early days. Uh, oh yeah, the, it's a, quite a list, but anyway, those are, those are some of them. I hope you guys were a little stunned at the fact that he's talking about listing and being influenced by rock and roll and jazz. And I love that element of him. You know, he's a real life guy in today's world, but he plays classical guitar. I think that's what makes classical music move forward in each generation is that it relates to somebody now. It's not just, okay, stuff we used to do 150 years ago. And I think that's a drive and an element of his career that is inspiring so many other people. And I really appreciate that about him. Yeah, well, I, that definitely shines through in his personality. That Because, you know, I, I hate to say it, but there's like that weird stigma with some classical music or uh, classical musicians where they're very strict on the music and very dialed into one specific way. But the fact that he is really into rock and roll and jazz, and it just kind of makes him the guy he is, which is cool. Absolutely. Yeah. And with his background, um, you know, and fam- with his family and being uh, surrounded by jazz and folk music as a kid, you can definitely see all of those influences that come through. Yeah, definitely. I think he's the first person I ever met who played lute um, in a uh, early ensemble that also mentioned Led Zeppelin in their interview. <laughs> 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 Gotta love them. Naturally, those go together. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in this next segment coming up, he's going to be talking about uh, a little bit more about his connection with classical music. And I just wanted to uh, put a few little things out there in your head to listen to uh, or think about while you're uh, listening to him. When he was with the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet, he recorded about 10 albums, one of which won a Grammy. And uh, my favorite is uh, the Guitar Heroes album that he did. Fantastic work. And I encourage all of those listening who want to hear a little bit more about him. There's another album that he did uh, as a soloist uh, in 2008, I think it was, maybe 2006, uh, called California Breeze. That's another one really worth listening to. Uh, And then in 2008, 18, just a few years ago, he had another solo album called Home. And the reason I'm bringing these up now is um, you'll hear a little bit of his um, his background and how that intertwines with what his concepts of classical music are. And that's a really neat thing to understand when you're listening to somebody's music is where they're coming from and how they take something that's been so well established like classical music and make it their own. And I think Andrew York does that in spades in those three albums, in my opinion, especially. Awesome. So let's jump back into the 2019 oral history interview with Andrew York. Tell us about the classical connection. How did that really develop for you? Well, uh, my dad always loved classical music. He wished he had had the opportunity to study. Even though he was a folk musician, he listened to classical music. We always had the radio on at the house. He would tune to the classical station. And um, so I heard it a lot. And um, even as a child, I loved pop music. I put on like Beatles Abbey Road just came out, you know, when I was in, you know, 11 years old or whatever. So I would listen to the Beatles, listen to other rock and roll and loved it. But also I was completely aware that, you know, when I would listen to Beethoven, as I mentioned before, that there was something else going on here. There was just a richness and an intelligence and just, you know, the patterns were so deep. it, it fascinated me incredibly. So classical music was already there as, as something that I was drawn to. 
So my, my dad said, well, let's get, let's get you lessons. So very early, um, we found a lady named Greta Dalitz in Richmond, Virginia, wonderful German lady, and um, had a long-standing radio show, uh, one of the longest-running classical guitar radio shows in the country. And uh, so I started studying with her quite young and studied with her for a number of years and got a good foundation for classical technique. And then I just, I kept on that path with some, you know, digressions, like when I did rock for a while, you know, I kind of dropped the classical for a couple of years, though I still played it at home, but I didn't really study. But then I would always come back to it, you know. Um, but it's just, um, then classical guitar, you know, the, the nylon string, which it used to be gut, and then when they, you know, uh, invented nylon as a, as a uh, good substitute for, for gut, uh, this is the sound that I really resonated with. Like the harp, the orchestral harp has nylon strings, and it has that very warm, beautiful sound. Now, steel string, I also love steel string guitar and used to play it, but the steel is very tight, very brilliant, and wonderful. It's got a great sound, but there's something about, you know, gut and nylon. It's just the, the, the warmth of the sound. It's incredibly warm, and the amount of colors you can get is, is unparalleled. I think no other instrument in existence allows you such a diverse palette of timbres as the classical guitar. I love that. And the guitar in general attracts me because it's a contrapuntal instrument. You can play multiple lines. You know, when I played flute or trombone, one note at a time is all you get. That's wonderful, of course, but I'm really attracted to harmony. So with guitar, I can create my compositions, you know, a harmonic landscape that includes multiple melodies happening at the same time. Mm. So I, that's why I think my music is classical because there's multiple patterns, multiple voices, almost everything is multi-voiced, which is polyphony, counterpoint. Which probably explains a little bit of my curiosity of why classical was accessible to you as a composer. Similar, I'm guessing, as far as your connection with the sounds and relatability. So when you say accessible, that I liked listening to it? Yeah, well? yeah I think, again, the reason I, I was so attracted to it because, you know, that was the music that was sort of music for music's sake. It was, you know, great minds in the musical world over the centuries expressing in, in most creative way they could imagine, you know, whatever was happening at the time. And, and classical music also went through periods and changed. I'm very attracted to the Baroque period and, uh, you know, Bach is my my favorite composer, but when you hear his music, it's just a study in multiple voices happening at the same time, and each voice is incredibly beautiful. Um, you know, he was a great, great genius, and you can hear it in his music. So, to me, that's that is very accessible to hear that. That that has interest. You know, I like pop music. I like it a lot. You should listen to a lot of rock and roll. Um, I still do, as a matter of fact. Like Led Zeppelin, I like a lot of you know a lot of this music. To me, is very visceral and great. And so I love it. The, but classical music is just on, on, potentially on such another level. You know, there's just such a depth of things going on. It's, it's much more interesting for me. You know, most pop songs, by the time it's done, I know it intimately. You know, what the chords are, what the inversions are, what the melody's doing. It's sort of, it's all just laid out. So how interesting can that be, you know, after a while? Uh, classical music takes a little bit more mental chewing, you know, to... to you know, access all the patterns that are going on, so it keeps me more busy, you know. It has more potential for, you know, enjoyment and exploration. 
which is intimidating for some people approaching it to compose classical yeah. music. Were you ever intimidated? No. <laughs> no, because, you know, um, I think because even as a, a very small child, you know, I, I would listen and get information. So it was kind of all there. I didn't need to be taught it because I could hear it. It was like just there. I, I mean, this, this is interesting, potentially. My first memory, like if you go back to the earliest thing you can remember, my first memory is of sound. And I think I was being pushed by my mother in a stroller. I was sitting in a stroller, so that's how young I was. Um, and back in those days, you know, if you went to a department store, they had the escalators with the bell on them. You know, they had a little bong. And I remember that. She was pushing me up to the edge of the escalator, and it went bong. And I remember being completely enamored with that as a sound, and I was very aware of the envelope. Of course, I don't know if I could even talk yet, but I, I, I heard it as an attack, a decay, you know, sustain and decay, and a timbral quality. The whole thing, I didn't think of it in those terms, but I heard it as an entity, the sonic, you know, moment, and I was really fascinated, so much so that it went right into my long-term memory. And the funny thing is, is I can play back that sound now just like I could then. Same thing, anything I heard as a boy, I can still hear it the same way, and all the information um, I get now from music, I could get then. It was just the way my brain was wired. So I didn't know what to call anything, but even at this, but I could just take the music apart and hold it and look at it from different angles then. And I thought everybody could do that, you know, but they, everybody can't do that. But that's, to me, music is very much a three-dimensional landscape through which I can wander. Tell me about... Uh composing how did that start for you um, as soon as I could play I started to write as soon as I had any any knowledge in the guitar I started to make make up stuff and even when I didn't know how to write it down I would write it down in ways to remind myself what I was doing I wish I had some of this stuff I remember I had one when I was a kid that had mustard on it I was eating a hot dog and it squirted out but so that was the mustard piece for a while I don't have it anymore but um, I don't know. I, I like creating things. I like exploring and finding new ideas and creating things. And so, I mean, that's how I basically have made my living my whole life is creating music, you know, whatever I'm interested in. You know, I went through a, a period where I taught myself uh, software programming. I still write software that I use in my business and my publishing and things like that. I, and I love to make software to create, to do things. You know, it's like very interesting to me. To me, and that was the same process as composing. I like to make new music. You know, I like to work with mathematics and, and explore different areas. You know, personal research and things like that. So I'm just drawn to creating. I like to create stuff. You know, and that's why I don't just play only traditional repertoire like so many classical guitar players. They play pieces that people have been playing for decades now. That's just not what I'm drawn to. I want to create new music and play that. Though I do still play Bach because it's just so wonderful. But I want to make new music. I'm always trying to write music and, and my concerts usually reflect the pieces that I've written in the last few years. I always just keep wanting to play my new music. You know, it's drawn to creativity. So we are listening to Andrew York and um, we we're just listening to a lot of his influences with classical music and uh, I just thought it was amazing that his first memory of sound is that bell on the elevator <laughs> and how just at such a young age he could he knew that and he could like decipher from what that was and it's amazing yeah crazy I mean I feel like there's always stories like this with people that turn out to be like genius composers like yeah when I was 10 you know I could do this or right, I heard right. that and I instantly remembered it or whatever and it's it's just so cool to hear the mm -hmm. stories 
Absolutely. I think coming up, uh, Andrew's going to talk a little bit about Andre Segovia, and I just wanted to add my uh, sort of introduction to Maestro Segovia. Um, he was born in Spain in 1893 and passed away in um, 1987 and really was sort of the, the cornerstone of classical guitarists. Now, of course, there were people playing classical guitar before him, but not at the level in which he was incorporated into works, um, commissioned works, and his own transcriptions um, broadened the repertoire for classical guitar. And as a result, anybody really after him who picked up the guitar was influenced by him. And I think that's a fair statement to make. He was really the, the father and uh, the foundation for, um, for that movement, and especially in Baroque, but also, of course, in traditional classical music. So, um, so Andrew talks about him and his influence, and I think it's a, a very special time uh, for me during this interview, I remember because um, uh, Maestro Segovia was still alive when I was really understanding classical music and listening to guitar music uh, as a teenager. And I remember uh, 60 Minutes had an interview with him, Maestro Segovia, uh, before he passed away. I think he was in his 90s and still touring. In fact, I think he had a teenage kid when he was in his 90s. Uh, let's not talk too much about that. But uh, obviously a very active individual. And so uh, what was fantastic to me was they were asking about this touring schedule and how many albums he's still doing and concerts and so on. And they said, Maestro Segovia, when are you going? to rest and he said I have eternity to rest <laughs> and I that has always struck me as a great way for people uh, that we run into time and time again in the music industry uh, who are involved with music and involved with something that's very passionate about what they do and and that to me symbolizes so much of uh, it expresses to me so much that really desire to just keep going because you know what we have this opportunity now let's take it and run for it and so in his 90s he's still playing as much as he was when he was in his 40s because he knew this is his chance to do it and i really appreciate that about him so here is andrew york talking about andre segovia and then he goes into a little bit more about his career the la guitar quartet and some changes in live sound over the years i would really appreciate your take on andre segovia uh, well, he was uh, amazing, actually, um, self-taught and changed the face of the guitar world, in fact, created it. The reason we have university programs all around the world is because of Andre Segovia. Guitar before that was considered a barely tolerable folkloric instrument and was not taken seriously by anyone. Um, but he insisted that you could play serious music, meaning Bach and other, other composers, um, on the guitar and set out to do so and you know people would come to laugh at him they, they expected this is going to be ridiculous he's going to he's playing you know Bach and other other classical composers let's go watch him fail but he didn't fail and he gradually earned the respect of the musical community and he had a very forceful personality and a very great talent to be able to do this and um, you know he certainly had his negative points too he was very opinionated but like most strong-willed people, of course, you have to accept that. But his legacy is this great pedagogy we have for the instrument and the fact that almost every classical guitar 
performer I know also has a teaching posi position at a university, and that's directly uh, attributable to Andre Segovia. So, you know, heard him play uh, in his 90s when I was young uh, in Washington, D.C., and he was still playing actually quite well. Maybe he was in his 80s, late 80s, I don't remember now, but I was, I was backstage after the concert um, with other students of the university where I was studying, and we were all waiting to see if he was going to come out. You didn't know. And I was just sort of standing there by myself in this little you know, green room or whatever, and then a little side door opened, and he kind of tottered out right next to me and looked at me, and I just handed him my program. He signed it and signed maybe one other, then he went away. And, you know, it's like, he was just here, and they're all like, no, he wasn't. I said, look. It's like he didn't, nobody else saw him, but he just got, <laughs> there he was. That was cool. So I, that was my one moment with Andre Segovia. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Still have that program somewhere, I hope. <laughs> I should have it somewhere. So, um, it's curious to me about how you yourself saw your, your um, career develop. I mean, what were some of the milestones, do you think, as far as starting maybe with that aha moment that, you know, this is where I want to be, what comes to mind? Well, you know, it's funny, I, I never really had any doubts, I mean, when I think about it, not really, I mean, I might have had some fear, you know, just any, like anything, like, uh, I remember when I, to, to, as a preface to that, you know, when I was preparing to apply for, you know, to universities and colleges in high school, um, I was very good in science, and I, it was either that or music. And I chose music, I think just because of the beauty of it. There was something so alluring. Um, and I remember my parents were, are you sure you're aware that it's very hard to make a living in music and you'd probably do much better if you were a scientist, just, you know. And I said, yeah, but I, I want to do music. And they were like, okay, we support you 100%. So I was very, very lucky that way. They were completely behind me and believed in me. Um, so as I went out to do this, I went to California to USC from Virginia and um, that was a great experience. After that, I began to try and get concerts, and that's kind of just began to happen organically. Um, and one of, one of the most formative moments, um, which I think Henry alluded to a little while ago, was uh, I had a grant to study in Spain in 1986. And um, one of the facets of the grant was to go to a festival in um, Cordoba, Spain and um, John Williams was going to be there teaching and he, he rarely came to festivals to teach but he was going to coach ensembles. Now I had written, um, not written but arranged the Nutcracker Suite by Tchaikovsky, the entire suite for two guitars, which just sounds like it would not work, but it did. So I thought you have to play ensemble music so a friend joined me when we were going to play for John Williams. Now. Ben Verdery is a good friend of mine, he's a well-known classical guitar player about my age and he's just Super creative cat. We're very good friends. I had just met Ben, you know, eighty-five or whatever, and he had told me he heard me play. He came to USC here to do a master class, and I played for him. And he said, "You know, you should come to Spain." You know, Ben's like caffeinated all the time. He's great. He's like very excited. You know, I'm going to be teaching there with John Williams. He's doing you know ensemble stuff. You should come. You know, and I played him one of my pieces. And so we got. I got to Spain, and Ben heard me playing my new composition, Sunburst, which I had just written. So I hadn't even written it down yet. I only could play it. I just recorded it before for my first record, which was actually just on cassette at that time, it, just, just before I left for Europe in 86. So I got to this festival. Ben heard me playing the piece Sunburst and said, you have to play that for John Williams. You're, I'm going to put you on the, the afternoon concert. I want you to play a couple pieces. So I played. He said, I'll make sure John's there. 
So I got up there and I played another my pieces, Mirror Woods and John standing in the, in the doorway. Turns out he didn't like that one too much. He told me later, it goes on a bit, doesn't it? And she's like, oh man. But then I played Sunburst and he really liked it. So he ended up, um, I remember we went and had coffee after that and he asked me to send him the music. And I told him I hadn't written it out yet, but when I got back to the States, I would. And I did, and I sent it to him. So we ended up recording that on his, uh, within a couple years on uh, one of his so CDs for Sony. He did that in my piece, Lullaby. Well, at that time, it's hard to imagine how famous John Williams was at that time. Classical guitar was somehow still a huge part of, uh, uh, more a part of the culture than it is now. There's now kind of a plethora of players like that are well known. But then there wasn't. There was Segovia. Then, at, you know, not after Segovia, but the next generation were, were his students, Christopher Parkening, uh, John Williams, and Julian Bream. And that was kind of it of like the high tier. There were other great ones, but that they were like the ones that were w basically worldwide names. Okay. Then after that was the next tier, which are much less known. You know, I mean, Christopher Parkin used to be on The Tonight Show. He was, you know, can you imagine a classical guitar player being on like the Leno Show and it was on? That was never gonna happen. But back then, it was more a part of the culture. Anyway, so Williams recording Sunburst in my piece Lullaby was just like going from step two to, to the top of the staircase instantly because of the visibility I got as a composer. So that was a huge boost. You ask what was a, you know, one of the formative things that was, it, helpful beyond measure. I was very lucky. You know, kind of bypassed all that struggle to get my music heard. Suddenly everybody knew this piece and to this day it's still, you know, just a staple in the classical guitar repertoire. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Amazing. One of the things that I would love to, uh, I was thinking about this, I would love to walk away with um, a story of how a song came about for you. And I, I'd love for you, you can pick the song if there's one particular one that comes to mind of, you know, how did it come to you? Um, they, they come in a lot of different ways, but I'll tell you about uh, my recent piece, well, it's relatively recent, Home. Um, it's become very popular. I have a couple million views right now on YouTube for one recording of it. Um, and it was an improvisation. What I like to do is improvise. I, I would do that instead of practicing. I just pick up the guitar and I, I just like to begin playing. And Annie, my wonderful wife, will hear something she doesn't recognize and put her iPhone on, you know, recording to capture them. So this piece home, I just played it from beginning to end, um, it fully formed, and she caught it. And if she hadn't, of course, it wouldn't exist. Um, I wrote it down. She said that was a really good one, and so I listened to it and wrote it down. Just re, you know shuffled it a little bit here and there to make the pieces fit together, but it was pretty much intact. And that, um, they don't always happen that way. You know, that was sort of just fully formed. A lot of them take massive amounts of work. Uh, I just finished a fugue in four voices in this style. It's, it's a Baroque style. It starts out like Bach, and then it kind of moves a little more modern and goes back to the Baroque. But that took like three or four days of just writing, rewriting, just, just, kind of being obsessed with it. It's always a, a, a study and obsession. Whenever I'm writing, it, it tends to happen uh, 24 hours. You know, I mean, I mean it's like, I, I'm, it's on me 24 hours. Even when I'm sleeping, I'll wake up with ideas for, you know, recombining things or whatever, and get up, you know, and record them in the dark or whatever. It just, there's usually, a, and I usually write very fast at that stage. Usually within a few days, a piece goes from the beginning stages to done in a few days. There might be like two weeks of kind of sketching and struggling to get 
to that stage, but then it kind of happens very fast and it's very obsessive. It's not necessarily very pleasant, you know, because it's just kind of takes over. Um, but that's what, that's the way it works, what I have to do. So I wish they were all as easy as home was, where I just improvise a piece and then that was easy, and then write it down. But often there's a lot of work and drawing on all my skills and knowledge to, to make the piece happen. I don't want to skip too many things, but I also don't want to forget um, talking a little bit about the Los Angeles um, mm. guitar quartet. Can we talk a little bit about how that came about for you? Yeah, that was a course. I played with them for 20 years, um, officially for, I think, 16, but I started really years before, and I'll, I'll tell you about that briefly. So um, it was a great experience. I mean, we, we all matured so much musically playing together, and we kind of broke new ground. So experience I really treasure. It's what I have uh, the Grammy for. The first one I was involved with, Grammy, was for the LA Guitar Quartet. Mm. Um, when I came to USC from Virginia, um, I met all of them, basically. I became very quickly good friends with Scott Tennant. We would hang out. We were playing unison lutes in the early music ensemble. There was only a spot for one lutenist, so, but I wanted to play it too, so the director said, okay, but you have, both have to play the parts. And these were like rock and roll parts. They, um, the lute was kind of the show-off instrument in some of those ensembles, like the Morley consorts that would have recorders, maybe a viol or two, the gambas, like, you know, larger and smaller gamba. There'd be a cittern, a little steel string, like a medieval or a Renaissance mandolin lute. Um, and so the lute lines were often the embellished lines. You'd have the ding, da ding, and then on the repeat, just these lines that were amazing. So Scott and I were to play those together, and that was cool. So we, we kind of bonded doing this, you know, rock and roll lute playing. Um, I became good friends with John Dearman. And I met Bill briefly, but didn't, we didn't become close to him until a little bit later. But I met them all three. And um, the, the quartet had just begun. They had just done a, uh, the, one of their first tours in Mexico. They were kind of getting known. Um, and then I was in L.A. for a few years and then went back to Virginia for a while. I was going to decide what I was going to do. And Bill called me up and said, you know, we have this contract to do like 30 or 40 school concerts in elementary schools, teaching them about music and guitar, and um, the, the other member doesn't want to do it. Do you want to do it? And I thought, at that point, I had nothing going on. I was deciding where I wanted to move, what I wanted to do in New York, or go back to L.A. So I thought, it's a reason to go back to L.A. So I started playing with them. We did all these these really fun like show concerts in Pasadena and everything, and a few evening concerts, too. We did this, this went on for, for several years, and then um, the uh, other member was ill and couldn't do a tour, so I went on tour with them and they asked me to join. They said, this is just too good a match. So I joined at the end of 1990, promptly moved to London, which was, that was difficult. So uh, we kind of just rehearsed by fax at that time, and we had three European tours. After that, after a while in London, I moved back, and then we were able to really go at it. And I was with them until 2006, when I left at the end of 2006. But in that time, we, um, you know, we reached every goal I had for the group. We, we went through a succession of record labels of increasing importance until we ended up with Sony, which was a big deal. But even better than that was when we left Sony and went with Telarc, and that was the fantastic. They were just great label to work with, uh, very creative, open, and uh, we had a great producer, Bob Woods. We, won, we were nominated twice for a Grammy and won one through Telarc. Um, and yeah, it was, it was wonderful. I've gradually left because I wanted a, a richer creative outlet. You know, the, the quartet was wonderful, but I've been doing it a long time, writing a lot of quartet music, and 
I felt a little unfulfilled in other areas of my my artistic needs. So that was that was why I left. It was you know I honor the memory and the experience we had. It was really great. I'm sort of curious about um, did you see the quartet having opportunities to um, broaden audiences to uh, and introduce classical music to um, different audiences more so than let's say a solo artist or other opportunities? That's a good question. I think, you know, in retrospect, I have to think if I was even thinking along those lines, it just seemed like a really interesting thing to do. They, it, we were all s such good players coming together. It was more like four soloists finding a way to blaze a path. We were very different than, you know, any other guitar ensemble, uh, more of a band in a way. Um, but it did seem pretty clear quickly that we could play music with an accessibility that would bring people in. And we did have an audience that was very different than most classical groups who were considered a classical group, but we had a large young audience as well as older people too, but a lot of classical um, acts would have primarily elderly audiences because they were playing, you know, Schubert and things that, you know, that would draw in the older people and no young people pretty much. But we were different. You know, we, were, we, we would have, you know, teenagers at the concerts and then people all the way up into their 90s. So there was that aspect that became very quickly clear. But Sony hired us because of the new music. You know, they, they, you know, our first Sony record, you know, the producer came to me and said, you know, it's your music we want to have, you know, on a lot of these recordings and that's the direction we want to go in. So, you know, I was writing a lot. We did also arrangements of stuff. We would blend classical music with new music and we'd get other composers to write for us. But it was the new music that set us apart. Absolutely. Very cool. So when did you start teaching? I only started teaching seriously at a university three and a half years ago. Yeah, I kind of, I purposely avoided it before that because, um, uh, you know, teaching is great. It's a beautiful thing to do to, to share your knowledge with students. Also, it's very, very necessary for a lot of musicians to have the regular income. Um, but I avoided it because I wanted my time to compose and do my other, you know, ancillary projects that have always interested me. Um, but in the last years, now that I'm a bit older, I want to tour a little bit less, and I find that I really enjoy working with students. I teach, you know, mainly graduate students, but also undergraduates at Cal State Fullerton, and I just find it wonderful. I, I'm learning so much doing the teaching, and, uh, you know, as you get older, if you spend a lifetime doing a discipline, you find you do have a lot to offer because you've thought about things so much, and some of, some of the ideas take decades to develop. Really, you know, so the things that may seem obvious to you later, but you realize they were a long time coming. And so I find it very fascinating to work with the students, each with their own unique set of needs and abilities here and deficits there, and just trying to balance those things. And it's very fascinating, actually. And rewarding, I'm sure. It, very, it is. I mean, I wouldn't do it otherwise. The money's not that great, you know. I mean, I'm jealous of the time, I have to say. I, you know, I. The only thing, the only fault I find with teaching is it takes time away from the kind of internal life I have for creating things, which I really like and need. And, you know, time is so precious, especially as we're getting older, you know, so it's uh, always a choice how to spend that time. But that's what I'm choosing to do right now. I hope I'm allowed at least one question out of complete left field. I, I love left field questions, okay. I have to say. Well, I, I was just thinking that because your musical career really developed in an amazing time of technological changes, especially in music and sound, and thinking about the, this expert behind us in live sound, 
and his amazing <laughs> career. Shout out to Henry Austin. Um, I was just kind of wondering, from the classical musician, has there been changes in live sound and, and performances that have affected you, or because it's an acoustic bass instrument, not necessarily? Well, I would I would say, in you know, I play mainly concert halls, not really huge ones, but you know, could be anywhere from you know, 150 seats, 300 seats, up to 1,000 is kind of the normal thing. On guitar is very, very quiet. So I play half of them amplified, I would say, more or less. If the hall is very small, it can be very beautiful to play. If it's a perfect hall with great acoustics and it's not so big, there's an intimacy you can achieve just by playing acoustically that's, you know, can be very special. Though I love to amplify because guitar being so quiet, one person coughs, everybody in the hall loses a measure or two. You know, that's, and it, it interrupts the structure. You know, it damages the structure you're trying to create. So a little amplification really helps people hear it. People enjoy it more if they can hear it. And it, it enables me a much greater dynamic range. The crescendos then actually begin to act like crescendos and not just a little teeny guitar thing. Because, I mean, guitar is the quietest instrument there is. You know, you, you, if I play next to a violin, you won't even hear me. You'll just hear a little dink-dink from the attack. That's just the nature of the instrument. We have very little energy to work with, especially because nylon strings are relatively low tension. So there's not much energy to sustain and to make the instrument speak with any meaningful volume compared to a violin, which is just you know exciting the string in this incredible way. They're very loud. People don't realize this. So I love to amplify. Now amplification's gotten better and better over the years. Sure, um, it's it surprises me now. Uh, the average quality of sound is is significantly better now than it was 10 or 15 years ago. You know, there, so it was difficult sometimes to get a, a pretty good sound, but now it's kind of normal. Like the sound engineers at most of the halls, yeah, I got some good condensers, they know where to put them, they, they know how to use their system, and you know, I don't know. So I find that uh, it works out pretty well now. There are some purists in the classical guitar world that you know, still refuse to amplify, like Segovia never did. He would play huge halls, and, the, you know, I understand the idea and, and, you know, his reasons, but you really couldn't hear him. You were sitting back, you know, a hundred yards or whatever, and you could just hear his little ding, 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 ding. I was like, really? So it was harder that time to amplify well. Um, but now it's not, not that difficult. You can get a pretty, pretty darn good sound. And I just noticed that the audience response is inevitably better if you're a little bit louder. I was told by one very great performer that he would rather have bad amplification than no amplification. I won't say who, because he probably said it in a way he wouldn't want it. No, but, <laughs> but he was serious. And he would typically always travel with someone to amplify him on his tours. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. Very interesting. So you are listening to the Music History Project, Andrew York full oral history interview from March of 2019. We just heard Andrew talking about the L.A. Guitar Quartet, changes in live sound, Andre Segovia. All kinds of stuff. All kinds of really good stuff. It's so compelling. I want to say that the oral history program has a lot of people to thank for our success and the possibilities and opportunities that we have had has a lot to do with our support team. Those are folks who have given us ideas, who give us space, who give us connections, who give us background, 
without whom we would not be where we are today with over 4,000 interviews. And one of those gentlemen made this interview possible, and that's uh, Henry Austin, a dear personal friend who's been a very strong supporter of our program for many years. And um, he was the one who connected us to uh, Andrew York, uh, in fact, went to uh, the Los Angeles area with me to conduct this interview. And he's actually a uh, part of the uh, the next segment in that uh, it was Henry who brought up uh, the topic of Christopher Parker and the story that he really wanted Andrew to tell uh, for our camera. And uh, as a matter of fact, he was able to do that. So uh, let's listen in to this segment of Andrew York's interview. I met Christopher Parkening, I think, 1990 or thereabouts. He asked me to write a, a piece for him and his duo partner. They were doing a record for Angel Records. And um, I wrote Evening Dance just, in, again, a few days. I just kind of just, whoosh, actually, very, very fast. And it's kind of a theme in variations. Um, and he did a beautiful job recording it. So we became friends at that time, and we've done uh, other work together since. Well, years go by, and then Chris is dating this lovely lady from Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, thinking about, you know, the, he's thinking about asking her to marry, marry him. And she's an amateur guitar player. And she asks him, she says, Chris, do you know a guy named Andrew York? There's this piece I, I love called Andesy, which is the one Henry was just mentioning. And Chris is like, yes, he, I, you know, I know him very, very well. And so he immediately, as soon as he could get away, he called me up and said, would you fax me the music to Andesy? So I did, and he learned it quickly. And then he went out, and Chris had asked her, says, you know what, I can get him to play it for you, to for, you know, play, play it for you, if you like. She says, what I'd rather have is for you, play it, to, for you play it for me. So he learned it, he sat her down, played it for her, and proposed to her with this piece. And so then they asked me to come to their wedding and play it for them at their wedding. So that, that's the, you know, how that <laughs> came about, which is very, I was very honored by that. And Chris remains, and, and Teresa to this day, very good friends. You know, I respect his musicality very much. How did and you write that? What, Andesy? Um, I was in Europe the first time, and for a three-month period just exploring, and driving through the Champagne district of France, and uh, stopped at a little town. Back then, you know, there was no internet, so if you wanted to find a place on a map, you had to have an atlas that, you know, and the more detailed at atlas would have the smaller towns. This town was so small, and to see that it wasn't on any maps unless you had the big, thick atlas books. Um, of course, now with Google Maps, it's accessible to anyone. But at that time, I was going through it, it was very beautiful, stopped and opened a bottle of wine and some nice French cheese and just improvised this piece and remembered it. I, I liked it. And, it, you know, it something I had have told almost no one is that I was thinking of the police song uh, like da da dee dee da da dee da 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 you know like I'll be wrapped around your finger that that tune because it has that kind of groove that and I liked that a lot so I did a similar groove but in a slow three but it, to me, it was inspired by that feel. And I, so I was just kind of playing around with that idea, but in a different time signature. And that's how that piece came out. I mean, I, I'll show it to you, just the, the, the way it kind of works, so that you'll get immediately that kind of feeling of like, like. Just a three. So that's the groove, you know. And the melody on top. 
get a sense of that. That's the basic groove for it and how the melody works. But it has that nice sense of pulse that was really inspired by the police tune. I told Andy Summers that years later. Oh, you did? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Very cool. Henry also mentioned um, method books. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that because part of the teaching is creating something that you feel is a vehicle that can assist you in that process. Well, the only method book that I did do was three volumes of, of jazz targeted for classical guitar players. Long ago, there was a, um, a festival called National Guitar Summer Workshop, and they would meet in various places. I used to go teach there in the summers um, for a week-long kind of just boot camp kind of setting. It was incredibly, it was just tough. There was no air conditioning. It was hot. They worked the faculty to death. But there was, it was a huge bonding experience. I made great friends that I'm still you know, in touch with constantly in the guitar world. It's like everybody was there for that period of time. I was, and so um, I proposed teaching a class called Jazz for Classical Cats, because a lot of guitar players, classical guitar players, would ask me about improvisation and jazz, because you know, they don't know anything about it. And I have a background in it. So I thought this would be a fun thing to do. So after a couple years of doing that, um, they got a publishing deal with Alfred, uh, the publisher, and asked me to do a series of books. So I did one on um, harmony, then chord melody, then improvisation. Those are the three volumes. And they were very, very difficult to write. To, to put all this stuff in a book that clearly, you know, from, from, ground, from the ground up and clearly lays it all out so it's intelligible, I found really difficult writing the exercises. And then we had recorded a CD with each one. Um, but yeah, so they, they exist. They're still in print. Uh, they combined them into one large book recently, but I don't know now if they put them back out into three separate volumes. But so I don't use those for my teaching because I'm teaching in you know, a classical, mm. uh, but I draw from the, the, the knowledge in those books to when students want to work on improvisation or, or jazz. But these are more jazz in the sense of like, you know, jazz style, less about improvising just as a soloist to, to improvise music of any style, which is what I really like to do. You know, I don't, I don't really, I, I can do it, but I don't really play, you know, in, in a jazz style when I'm improvising. I just see where it goes and play in whatever style I want. Like Andesi, you heard. It can be any, any kind of thing, you know. So that was Andrew York talking about some of his amazing compositions that he's done over the years. Uh, another fantastic thing about him that we've kind of hinted at is um, how smart he is. He is really smart. He's, yeah, very smart. He is actually part of um, a society called Triple Nine which is like the 99.9th percentile of people, mm. um, even better than Menza. <laughs> <laughs> so not us, none not, of us. None of us, no. <laughs> uh, and he's, he's mentioned a great story about how he kind of just took the test as a younger kid, I mm. believe, on a whim, yeah. and didn't really know what was going on, and it was just like, oh, okay, sure. And he's in, the, he's in that society now. So um, he, one of his other great passions is math which he's going to be talking about now. So buckle up. This is going to get ultra technical. <laughs> Mathematical. Mathematical, yes. But very interesting. Yes, yeah. very interesting. My last recording is, um, I know this is probably very glary. Tell me if you can see that. Uh, beautiful graphic by this yeah, guy in awesome. Japan. He's just great. I told him what equation I wanted. And it, in, at infinity, it turns into music and it expresses as math on one plane and music in the other. So I wrote an entire suite based on mathematical constants, loosely based, inspired by. The music doesn't sound mathematical. But uh, yeah, I just have a, a, a real f passion 
uh, and fascination for mathematics. That just happened to, like about three years ago, I started getting deeply into it. I'd never really studied it uh, rigorously before, but I, I had just read a book um, that caught my attention called Great Theorems of History or something, you know, of, of all things. I wanted to use bookstore. And I became kind of very serious. When I was reading it, I, I just became obsessed to understand it. So I would read it until I could understand it. So it would require, sometimes I'd read a page that I couldn't understand without learning another aspect of mathematics. So then I would go study that for a week. Then I would come back and understand that. So I just kept diverging and learning kind of different fields. I'd go up, up through calculus and things like that, and trigonometry, how everything fit together until I could get through the book and understand it. And then that was it. That's basically from that point on, all I read are mathematical books. I mean, maybe, I, I used to read voraciously and still do. But right now it's kind of got to have a lot of numbers in it, you know, to, and that's what I want to do. Um, I started publishing articles. I had one mathematical article published in Vidya, the Triple Nine Society Journal. Uh, my first math article that I wrote was actually published. Actually, I'm dealing with a mathematician now, um, this lady on, on the East Coast, that uh, she's published many times and, and she became aware of, of some of the work I've been doing with a, a kind of a number theory thing. And we're actually collaborating now. I don't know if it will turn into an article, we'll see, but I kind of discovered a process that she's interested in, so we're communicating about it now. So th if this gets published, that'll be like a serious math thing, which is just amazing me. If I can actually, be, you know, be a co-author of a, like a, a math work that, you know, is, you know, a math, a true mathematical journal, that's going to blow my mind. So I hope it happens. But if not, it's still fun, you know, just to explore these things. So I'm always just thinking, just the same thing with music. I like creating, I like thinking about uh, math in a way that's exploratory, trying to find new directions or new things that haven't been discovered, which is very hard to do because there's been a lot of people thinking about this for thousands of years. But there's still always room to come at things from a different perspective and find new relationships. And, uh, like this, what Henry was showing you, this is um, equations I made for <laughs> Terrell rotation. Now, you may not want to use this in the video, but so when an object is going close to the speed of light, turns out uh, it doesn't look normal. And that's simply because, you know, we see by light, but if the object is going so close to the speed of light, the, t the time it takes the light from the front and the back of the object to reach your eye, or, or, or to reflect off, the object is moving, so it will be at a very different place in space for the front and the back. So you get this incredible distortion, they call it Terrell rotation, because the object actually seems to rotate because of this phenomenon. And you'll actually see the back of the object before it gets to you. Now, it's going almost the speed of light, so this is all theoretical in sense, like we can't see that fast, but that is what's actually happening. So I, I found that idea very fascinating, so I made my own equations that I could plug into uh, graphing software and make actually a, a video of an object moving by and show the uh, effects of Terrell rotation at any distance away from the observer. So that, and that's how I did it. That took a lot of time, but it was fun. So that's, that's, that's what I do for fun. I, and I do that, I have to be honest, more than music. I spend mo mo most of my time doing that because I just find it so interesting right now. I can show you a video of that later. It's just like a short video of this. You actually, I have a couple. You, one, you actually go through the cube. It comes at you, hits you center, and you can see how things look and how the, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. But the math just creates all that. It plots every point at every position, and so then it renders it. And, 
you can see what it would be like. How did your two-time alumni of the year come about? I think you're the only one in the history of USC that has that. That's what I was told. So first was with the LA Guitar Quartet. We, um, we were given as a group, you know, each one of us, uh, an alumni of the year award. And then um, a few years later, I was nominated again as, as an individual. I got an alumnus of the year uh, award from the music department again. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Quite an yeah. honor. Yeah, that was, that was nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Forgot about that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Henry also hinted about uh, you playing a couple of styles for us. Would you mind? Sure. So um, let's see. The second movement I'll play a little bit of, this is based on um, E, the base of the natural logarithm. It sounds so funny to say this stuff briefly in concert, I give a short explanation in a very friendly, accessible way about what they are. The, the concepts behind them are fascinating, but um, anyway, this is a kind of very luscious one.
And there's four more movements. They all vary quite a lot stylistically. So at the end, they get very technical. Mm. Um, and, and just, but it's a real fun suite. It's like 20, I don't know, 26 minutes. Wow. So in concert, it just takes everything I have to get through it and to keep mm. the energy, you know, the endurance to get through it because it gets even more rigorous near the end, the long ostinatos that just keep repeating and stuff. It's kind of crazy. Mm. So that's one of the newer ones. Yeah, I know. Wow. That, that one's good to warm up a little bit more. That's <laughs> yeah, all right. Incredible. <laughs> how do you, I mean, you were reminding me of this. How do you um, demonstrate harmonics when you're composing? Do you mean uh, literal, like, these kind of harmonics, you mean? Like, like yeah. How do I notate them? <laughs> There's a couple different ways to do it. What I like to do is notate the pitch that's actually sounding. 
because I just I like to see on the score like the notes that are actually being done. So okay. if it's very high, like you get some of the really high ones, I might put 8VA over it just to show like notated down an octave, but show that it's sounding up a of an octave. Then to make sure there's no confusion, I'll, I'll add like if it's this one, for example, I would do the F sharp up there over the staff and then um, put a, a circle two to show its second string and do an H dot seven to show it's the seventh fret. Now if it was for some reason like the 19th fret, I would do RH for right hand and then H19 so you know it's a right hand artificial harmonic but the same pitch. So that way because I notice people misread harmonics all the time. They'll do them on the wrong string, the wrong, wrong octave. So I give them everything. What fret it's on, whether it's right hand or left hand, and what string it's on, and the actual sounding pitch. Interesting. So, Very cool. Yeah. We should give a shout out to your guitar maker, too, because I think oh, yeah. you told me about when we were off yeah. camera. Yeah. So this is a David Daly. Uh, he's in uh, Reno area of Nevada, who's in Sparks. And I we've been friends for many, many years. In fact, that... Uh, boot camp festival that created jazz for classical cats that's how we got to know each other he came to do a, a talk on building guitars so many friends in the guitar world i have was from that like being in boot camp you know <laughs> um anyway i have a number of his guitars they're all different all works of art this is an interesting one it's, it was an electric it's a concert guitar but i had a pickup system put in for the times i needed to play very unusual concerts, for example, with steel string players who can just play at godlike volume levels. And nylon's very difficult to do that with just a mic. And pickups sound nasty on nylon. Just And so I took it out recently. I realized how good this guitar really is. And I took the pickup out. And I'm just really enjoying playing this one right now. Hmm. Yeah, I have a couple more that I travel with that are concert guitars. This one uh, is my recent favorite. I just took it to Japan with me. That's what I played. Yep. When you were talking about the Segovia influence, didn't you end up recording one of your records on Segovia's guitar on his Hauser? Oh yeah, I did a record called Hauser Sessions, which is a, Hauser refers to Hauser One. Um, he was a German guitar maker in the 30s and 40s, I think. And this guitar was built in the 30s. Um, a friend of mine owned it at the time. It's since been sold. And it, it, it was signed in French on the inside. You couldn't see it unless you put a mirror in, in there. It was something like, to my good friend Andre Segovia Hermann Hauser. Um, that was the language they had in common. Hauser didn't speak Spanish and, um, you know, and uh, Segovia didn't speak German, I guess, so they could communicate in French. So this, we know Segovia had that guitar in his possession. So I borrowed it, not intending to make an, a record, but I ended up going to a studio just for fun, recording some tracks, ended up releasing them, Hauser mm -hmm. Sessions. So. Yeah, just recently, I, uh, The Equations of Beauty, I did a video of the entire suite. I played it on a live video using Julian Bream's Hauser II, huh. the son of Herman Hauser I. Um, that's the, you can see that if you Google Equations of Beauty, you can see that guitar. I've done Home, the video that's got all these views, was done on a Torres built in. Uh, 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 one of the, the father of modern guitar, guitar makers is Torres. The guitars are beautiful. And it was built in 1888. Mm. And it was like it had just been built. It was so fresh and solid and rich sounding. So I've been lucky to record on some really great instruments just, just for fun, you know. So but my main one? ones are, are daily. So when yeah. I travel, I tra travel with David Daly. So they're just great. Awesome. Hauser 1 and 2 you played on? The what? Hauser 1 and 2? Ha Hauser 1 and 2, yeah. Were there yeah. differences between the two? They were very different. Mm. Uh, hard to describe what the differences were. They just had a different sensibility, kind of, mm. uh, yeah. It's been a little while now. Like, it's like trying to describe wines you've had. It's like, <laughs> yeah, they were different. 
I can't really remember exactly what it was. But I liked, I got along well with both of those guitars. Sometimes I've tried playing on old guitars that, eh, it's just not happening. I know, mm. just like, you know, we're not getting along. Um, yeah, but those, those I enjoyed very much. And the Torres especially, especially fantastic instrument. They're not for mortals. I mean, these are always bought by collectors who have big bank. Mm. Most performers not spending a hundred grand on their guitars. I know violinists have to do, they spend a lot of money, but for some reason in the guitar world, guitars typically aren't that expensive and good thing, because you know, classical players don't make that much money. But so collectors snap out these guitars for one or two hundred thousand dollars that have some provenance and there they go. Mm. So we're lucky to be able to play them at all. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. This is awesome stuff. I really appreciate you having us over. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Yeah. So that's it. That is the interview with Andrew York for the NAM Oral History Program. What a guy. Do we feel smarter or dumber? That's what I want to know. (laughs) I mean, I feel a lot smarter. I don't know about you guys, but just being around smart people just makes me feel a little bit smarter. Absorb the smartness. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Especially after we talked about all that math. It's just, yeah, oh, I know what you're talking about. Makes sense to me. But being able to hear him and feel that passion, I think, is a special element of this podcast. So I appreciate all those who made that possible. Well, thank you very much for listening, and we will talk to you guys again in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.